0: Subject in the spectrum of the church today, you get, first of all, evangelicals, and they are kind of on the one side of the spectrum. And what they teach is a simultaneous uh, work of the Holy Spirit, and they base it on the writings of Paul that when you get converted, you receive the Holy Spirit, it's a done deal that's it. On the other side of the spectrum, you get the Pentecostals, and the Pentecostals base their teaching on Luke and Acts, predominantly, and they say that there is a distinct subsequent experience called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And there are many other movements, by the way, that are somewhere in between those two sides of the spectrum. Now, in comes the vineyard and Wimba, and of course, surprise, surprise, we are perfectly balanced (laughs) right in the middle. And I hope to show that to you. And what I, uh, oh, oh, by the way, I think it's because the approach is what is called a canonical reading of scripture. You don't elevate Paul or Luke Acts, you read the whole Bible and bring it together. And Wimber's remarkably um, ahead of his time insights have now been underlined by developments in what is called biblical theology. So scholarship has actually reinforced what he uh, taught. So. Basically, his view is it can be a simultaneous experience, it can be a subsequent experience. What is really important is that we need it, and it is a distinct work of the Holy Spirit, which is power for service. And so that's really what we're going to be exploring. So my hope in this teaching that I'm given, giving is to do a little adjustment, if I can, arrogant uh, hope, to the vineyard, because my perception is that we've kind of veered a little bit back towards the conservative evangelical viewpoint. Of course, that's not true of of the UK vineyard. You are still right balanced. (laughs) Uh, I'm talking about other people in the vineyard altogether. (laughs) And so my hope is to bring us a little bit back to what I think was the heritage we received. And that's what I'm going to try and do now. So Wimber's whole point was, don't get hung up on sequence teachings and labels. In fact, he used to say, just do it to them. So. That is actually a very helpful approach. And here is a really important quote from Wimber. It is a simple fact. God has a work of conversion. God has a work of empowerment. It can occur simultaneously. It can occur sequentially. It can occur with a long intermission in between the two or it can occur in a a short period of time. But the bottom line is it needs to occur. It is the infilling, empowering of the church, and we need it in order to accommodate the work of God. Conversion is truly a baptism in the Holy Spirit. There is no reason that we cannot use baptism to refer to subsequent fillings of the Spirit as well, and I do. So, just in case you've noticed, he chose Paul's language and Luke's language all at the same time in that statement. So, let's go back then to the event of pentecost and in the historical context the event of pentecost was a moment when jesus had given a command that was obeyed so his command was do not leave the city until you are clothed with power from on high and they obeyed his command and for 50 days they prayed in a very determined way together for the promise he had given to be fulfilled and on the day of pentecost the holy spirit fell on them and they were empowered by the spirit so the big question is how do we obey this command today and how do we pray in this way it's interesting you know that sacraments are based on two commands jesus gave do this in remembrance of me and go and baptize actually there's a third command he gave Wait until you are filled with power. Maybe we should have a Pentecostal sacrament or something. So let's just go a little bit more into what has, I think, paralyzed the church in these two viewpoints, the evangelical and um, the Pentecostal. What the uh, evangelicals do is they take... um, Paul's um, teaching and Luke's teaching and they say one or the other has to win. And um, if you follow the latest developments in biblical theology, actually, Paul uses language in his own way and Luke uses his language in his own way as John uses his language in his own way And we do not have to impose the way one biblical writer uses a phrase or a term on another biblical writer. We must let them speak in their own terms. So what really happens is that Luke, in what he says about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the evangelicals impose on that what Paul means by the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit. So Luke's view or language is kind of Uh, submerged, what the, and, and they teach therefore it is a simultaneous reception of the Holy Spirit, what the Pentecostals do is exactly the opposite. They take Paul's meaning of this phrase and they superimpose on it Luke's meaning of that phrase, that it is a subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit. And there's about a 100 year argument that has gone on between these two traditions. And what's making it a bit complicated now is the Pentees, in the, in the guise of charismatics, are growing and growing as a sector of the body of Christ. And uh, so that sort of view is, is tending to grow. Now, what Wimber initiated, and then scholars like Howard Irvin, Peter Davids, who's a, a Vineyard Scholar, and especially Craig Keener today, who uh, has written a commentary on the book of Acts, which is four volumes this thick, Um, what they do is they have a both-and view because they have a canonical reading of Scripture. And so really what we are faced with is let's listen to the language game of each biblical writer. So in Paul's language, to be converted... And incorporated into Christ is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's how he uses that phrase. And for Paul, to be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit living in you. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you can't be a Christian. And for Paul, this receiving of the Spirit happens when you are born again or regenerated by the Spirit. In Luke's language, on the other hand, there are a cluster of terms that all mean roughly the same thing. Terms like the promise of the Father, the being clothed with power from on high, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, being filled with the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit. Generally, in Luke and Acts, it doesn't refer to conversion, but to this other distinctive Pentecostal experience of the Holy Spirit. So the result is, There is more than one work of the Holy Spirit in the biblical teaching. Now, if we were to spend time on Paul, it would be absolutely appropriate to go into Paul's view of of the work of the Holy Spirit because it's part of inspired scripture. But today, I'm going to be now tracking with Luke. And so the big question is, how does Luke tell the story of Pentecost? And the key thing about Luke's view of Pentecost is he sees it as a succession narrative. And I owe this insight to Craig Keener. Uh, God didn't speak to me, unfortunately. I didn't get it, he got it. So I'm following Craig Keener, but it is a very, very helpful insight. And what he does is to show, when Jesus gave his inaugural address in Nazareth where he quotes Isaiah, he goes on to identify himself with the prophet Elijah. And Kina does this thing where he shows that the closest parallel to the ministry of Jesus in the Old Testament is the Elijah-Elisha ministry. So both of them healed leprosy, Jesus and Elijah-Elisha. They both multiplied food. They both raised the dead. They both operated in prophetic gifts of knowledge. They both had flower, uh, power. I said flower. Um, (laughs) Power. Power flowing out of their bodies. They were bodily transported. And here's the key thing. In both stories, as one person ascends into heaven, his anointing comes on his successors. And so the pre-story of Elijah and Elisha frames the Pentecostal story as it is told. So here is a quote that just makes me say things more efficiently. Given this parallel, we can confidently infer that Luke saw Pentecost as a succession narrative. Just as Elisha saw Elijah ascend into heaven and thereafter received a double portion of his spirit so that the company of the prophets could say, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha, the apostles appointed by Jesus saw him being lifted up and taken up out of their sight. As a result, the Messianic anointing that was on Jesus during his ministry was poured out on them at Pentecost. Do you, do you like that? I think it's really cool. Um, so if Luke is drawing on the, and all the scholars today say, Luke evokes the Old Testament. View of the Holy Spirit much more than, than most New Testament writers. Another key part of the Old Testament view of the Spirit is the relationship between commissioning experiences and anointing experiences. And so, all those guys Moses, the elders, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, if you read there, they have experiences of, of what is called a theophany, a manifest presence of God like Moses in the burning bush and often it's called this manifestation of God is called the angel of the Lord or the messenger of God who speaks as God himself like Gideon and in all of those a commission takes place go and deliver Israel and then later as they go to obey that commission as they go the Spirit of God falls upon them and empowers them to fulfill that commission and so if you read the way Matthew and Luke particularly tell the story of Jesus' ascension in Pentecost. They consciously tell it as a theophany experience. In the end of Matthew, it's on the mountaintop. The glory of God is there. Jesus ascends into heaven. Same in, in Luke and Acts. It's just as Jesus is about to send into, ascend into heaven, and he gives the commission, go and preach this gospel to all nations. You know, Matthew's version, Luke's version, forgiveness of sins. And the, the resurrection moment is a theophany commissioning moment. And then, on the day of Pentecost, the anointing to fulfill the commission comes upon them. And it is, therefore, a succession narrative and a commission followed by an anointing narrative. So to use Kena's language, just to quote him once, baptism in the Spirit refers... That he's talking about Luke to his own special emphasis in his narrative which usually lies on the more particular dimensions dimension of empowering for service. Luke allows that in some cases people experience this prophetic empowerment dimension shortly after or from a different perspective at a later stage in their conversion process. Luke also uses terms the term like the term gift of the spirit differently surveying the context of the references in Paul and for the most part John suggests that the expression refers to conversion in Paul and John, which initiates a person into the continuing life by the Spirit. By contrast, the context of the passages in Acts suggests especially prophetic anointing. So the result is, at least from Paul and Luke Acts, we have two works of the Holy Spirit. At least two works of the Holy Spirit. The fact is, actually... If you look at the scriptures, everything God does is not just in one act. So if we take, for instance, the kingdom of God, and you can look at these PowerPoint points later on. Uh, I'm just going to go through them very quickly. But the kingdom of God from the future breaks into the present in successive interventions of God. So the birth of Jesus is the arrival of the new age. The anointing of Jesus at his baptism is the beginning of the kingdom anointing. The transition from Jesus, from John the Baptist to Jesus is the kingdom of God being uh, released. Every time Jesus is involved in exorcism or healing, if I by the spirit of God cast out demons, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The cross is the day of judgment in advance, which means it's an eschatological kingdom event. The resurrection is the body of Jesus being the precursor of the bodies we will get in the resurrection. It is an eschatological event. And the day of Pentecost, Peter says, this is the last days. So to say, did the kingdom of God come? Yes. And you try to compress that into one event, like the cross only, for instance, which Protestants tend to do, is to misconstrue the New Testament. There is a a layered arrival of the kingdom breaking into the present. The same applies to the way the Holy Spirit um, is described. Sorry, I forgot to do that. Uh, Works of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm clicking two devices here, so bear with me. If you look at the biblical teaching on our relationship with the Holy Spirit, there are at least seven ways in which we relate to the Holy Spirit. We relate to the Holy Spirit by virtue of creation, the very cells in our body, we relate to the Holy Spirit by virtue of human life being breathed into us, the image of God. We relate to the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin prior to conversion. We relate to the Holy Spirit through regeneration. We relate to the Holy Spirit through transformation. We relate to the Holy Spirit through the power for service, the Pentecostal coming of the Spirit. And we will relate to the Holy Spirit in final glorification. So just as the kingdom come, comes so the spirit works in manifold ways in our lives so is there subsequence sure a whole lot of subsequences the idea of making it all it has to be this or it has to be that is to lose the wonderful creativity of scripture and the wonderful creativity of the way God works with us so if you follow the cases in Luke and Acts Wimber's con- conclusion that there's no rigid pattern, that it's sometimes this way and sometimes that way, is born out. So, for instance, Jesus seems to have a twofold. He is born of the Spirit. Very clearly, the Holy Spirit comes on his mother. He's conceived by the Spirit. And then at the River Jordan, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. If you look at the disciples, as Putty was telling us, when were they born again? When Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit and the new creation. So Peter says we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then later, having been commissioned, they are anointed at Pentecost. If you look at the Samaritans, you know that they were converted, signs and wonders, and then Peter and John went down and prayed for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you look at Paul, the light struck him off his animal, and he was, you know, summoned by Jesus, and then a few days later, Ananias prays for him, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. However, if you look at the household of Cornelius, it's a simultaneous experience. Peter hasn't even had a chance to give give an appeal yet, and they are being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he has to sort of back to front get them baptized. And then the household of Cornelius, well, who knows if they were really converted or not, so you can't really argue from that. So if you translate what seems to be in scriptures, in the Scriptures and you ask people's experiences today, you will find equally there is a rich diversity of experiences of the Holy Spirit. So for instance, there are people that I call clear subsequent people. They can tell you the date of their conversion and they can tell you another day when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope I've got time, but I'm just going to quickly tell you my story because it's quite amusing. I had a crisis conversion, an evangelist preached. I, I, my life was changed. A few weeks later, I had a calling experience. I knew I was called for ministry. I went to study theology, and I met a whole lot of Pentecostals. And they had something I didn't have. And so I started praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I prayed, and I had all sorts of people lay hands upon me A Methodist charismatic guy took me down a dark street at night somewhere and laid hands on me, (laughs) nothing. And I concluded I'm just not one of God's chosen ones, this is not for me, you know? And months I prayed. Now we had to do philosophy at Rhodes to study theology and the philosophy lecturers had been theological students who'd lost their faith. And their calling was to help us lose our faith. And they were explaining that the notion of God is an infinite logical regression. And statements about God are meaningless. And one of God's little jokes, I was sitting in a philosophy class. Okay, don't worry, I didn't manifest, all right? I I was sitting in a philosophy class and it felt like a bucket of fire landed on my head and went through my body. And I went back to my room and like a good little Anglican, I knelt down next to my bed. <laughs> and I started speaking in tongues. And it went on for quite a while. And then I went to lunch, which was, you know, a communal lunch in a residence. And the guys at the table said, Morphew, what's happened to you? I didn't say anything. The one guy said, have you just got engaged? <laughs> I said, why? He said, you, you're just smiling. You're just, what, what is it? And, you know. It was a major change in my life. So I can, I can talk about two very clear uh, experiences. But then there are simultaneous people. There's a, there's a budding vineyard theologian in, in, in USA that I talked to. And, and from the first encounter with the Christian faith, he was into the prophetic dimension. And for him, it's, it was all one. Then there are people I would call subsequent plus many fillings people. And I suppose I'm like that too because, you know, after becoming a charismatic like I told you, I then got to know Lonnie Frisbee and saw great power, and I just didn't get zapped ever. And he gave me his shirt to wear in the hope that I'd get the anointing. (laughs) And I think my wife put it in the washing machine and the anointing left. Um, And then you all know the Toronto thing. I got so zapped, like it was unbelievable. Um, for, for years. And that, you know, those were distinct subsequent experiences for me. And then you get people who are simultaneous plus many fillings. They sort of fall in the magic potion day one, and they just keep falling in the magic potion. And then it's really important to say this, that there are millions of faithful followers of Jesus who never get into any kind of charismatic dimension at all. And if we start saying you have to experience it this way or or you have to experience it that way, that brings a whole sort of judgment and condemnation into people's lives. So as the scriptures are, so Christian experience today, there is a diversity of types of experience. So back to the question then. What is Pentecost as Luke tells the story? And we can say that Pentecost is a succession narrative. The prophetic ministry of Jesus is being passed on to the disciples. We can also say, it is an anointing following a commission. It is to empower you for mission. And whatever we do about Pentecost, let's not not go looking for experiences. Let's look for power for mission. It is particularly a prophetic anointing. So Peter describes it as the fulfillment of the prophecy, all your sons and daughters will prophesy. And the, in, in, the, in the book of Acts, as in Elijah, Elisha, prophecy is an umbrella term under which all the other gifts are uh, you know, contain. Healing, revelatory phenomena, all of those power phenomena, they all under being the sons and daughters of the prophets. And what happened at Pentecost is the Christian church became the sons and daughters of the prophets, that they could operate in prophetic dimensions. And it is definitely not when the disciples were born again, because that's clear from the resurrection narrative. So I'm coming to the end of what I want to say, and let me, let me say this. This is the theology, I think, that I think is a, is a theology that... It's balanced, but it's not for me to say how we apply this. It's for national leaders, local pastors, how we do it. But I just want to put out a few suggestions because we do have to ask ourselves, are we obeying that command of Jesus today? And are we praying in that way? Are we seeking Pentecost? And so what I think is quite interesting is if you look at the early church, And the way the early church followed from the book of Acts, it moved into a clear pattern of Christian initiation that involved catechism, baptism, and confirmation. And so what they would do is a new convert would come, and they would be taken through teaching or discipleship and catechism, preparing them for baptism, and then the bishop would come and lay hands on them for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the word confirmation means chrismation or receiving the anointing. And it's interesting, that understanding has never been lost in the Catholic and high church Anglican part of the Christian church. So I could give you a book by a Bishop Chase, who was from Cambridge, wrote in 1909 a book called Confirmation in the Apostolic Age, and he argues all the text of Scripture for confirmation in exactly the way... A, same way as Pentecostals do for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so my first question to you is, how do we initiate people into the Christian church today? So long, long ago, when I was a pastor, is that not a a joke? Um, uh, Once upon a time, long, long ago, when I used to pastor churches and initiate people, I, I used to do it like this. I would say, you know, you want to get baptized? And I would do a little catechism. I would do a little few Bible studies. You can do it in a whole morning if you want. Let's speak, who is Jesus? Do you understand justification through faith? And, and are you going to repent and believe? Is this your life changing? See, because it's repent and be baptized. And then they would be baptized. But in the teaching, I would explain to them that in the early church, after baptism, They laid hands on you, and the Holy Spirit came on people, and that is to empower you from now on. And so they would know you not just to come and get baptized and go home straight away. We would organize a meeting right there, and of course, I'd get all the hot, imparting people in the church there, and we would lay hands on them and pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm suggesting something less than that is not a full-on biblical process of initiation. If you think about the Alpha course, it's, it's basically a kind of catechism, isn't it? And there's the Holy Spirit weekend. And actually, I think with Alpha, at least half the people, their experience of the Holy Spirit is a conversion experience. But for some of them, they have grown up in the faith, they've been believers, and Alpha is just like shifting them And for them, the Holy Spirit weekend is an an empowering. So again, that diversity of experiences. But I think we need to revisit, are we uh, obeying the command of Jesus? The other thing that I think is important to ask is, is the vineyard practice of ministry time enough? So you could say, we're doing Pentecost every service, aren't we? I mean, you, you get hands laid on you every conceivable excuse in the vineyard. (laughs) And, And long may that last. You know, hands laid on for this and for that and for the other thing. But it seems to me that to obey the command of Jesus, there's something a little bit more deliberate where they prayed for 50 days. Is there not a place for seasons in our church life that the leaders decide on where we preach about Pentecost, create expectations of what it is, This is powerful service. If you want to have hands laid on you for this, you're going to go and do radical things for Jesus as a result of this. And then to have events that are particularly receiving meetings, where, again, we get all the hottest zappers in our church, and we lay hands on on people and pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, the early Pentecostals used to call it carrying meetings. And it was part of their practice that, you know, every now and again, they would pray and fast, actually, and and then wait for a fresh Pentecost. So the last thing I want to say is this. If we are not intentional about being committed to a, what I think is a healthy, biblical theology of Pentecost, could we, in a generation time, become a post-charismatic movement. On my grave, you know, whatever. I'm nearer than most of you. Um, What a tragedy for a movement that began with Wimba. So I'm just saying, guys, I think it's time to focus back on the command of Jesus and to obey that command. So do you think we should just Get, in, get into your life now for a moment. I just want to pray a prayer. And um, after that, I'm, I'm open, you know, however ministry time might go. But if you want to say to God, make me, Lord, an imparter of Pentecost to my people, which will mean I'll need to teach it properly, i'll need to psych up the people properly i'll need to create the expectation and then i'll need to get them zapped which means you know you impart if you've received so i just want to say if if you say god right whatever it means make me an imparter of pentecost to my people so won't you stand up and i just want to pray for you in that And so, Lord, together we say, let your kingdom come in a new way to the vineyard in this country.